and welcome to Motopart, the internet radio show all about motorcycle and road racing. I'm your host, Richard Jarrett. This is episode number 714. Now, I'm actually recording this intro on January the 23rd. You will have heard Jim's entertaining chat with Scott Bolton recently about all things Moto America. Continuing the theme of ex-hosts and friends of the show, I was able to catch up with Martin Darlington a couple of weeks ago. And it probably won't come as any great surprise that our talk did go on for quite some time. So rather than slotting this in as an interview in a regular show, decided it was probably best to put this out as a special with Martin effectively acting as my co-host this week. So without further ado, here's Martin Darlington. I hope you enjoy the show and I will be back with Jim for episode 715 in a week or two's time. Okay, I'm delighted to say that we have a returnee in the form of ex-host and legend of the show, Mr. Martin Darlington. So, Martin, you're over in the UK for Christmas, but you're now safely back in Qatar. How do we find you, sir? Uh, Yeah, not too bad at all. It was uh, challenging going home to seriously sub-zero temperatures, but uh, (laughs) they they warmed up and everything got wet, so it did feel a bit more normal for a while. Uh, Yeah, back out here and just can't wait for the season to start now yeah it's you been, and me both it's been uh, weeks jim and i often comment as you will no doubt have heard that it's a very very short off season nowadays so i do sort of feel a certain amount of sympathy not for the riders so much but certainly the team personnel i don't know what you think about that yeah it's it, it's a tricky one isn't it and we will definitely at the first test overinterpret. you know even the professional journalists will say uh, the embedded journalists will say, yeah, we, we all read way too much into it. Yeah. But I think it's because we've been starved of it. But yeah, it is. And, it, and it's going to be the busiest, longest season with the shortest breaks during the season that any of the teams have experienced. I think Donna really have to be careful. Uh, and I personally would like you to see it paired back a race or two. Uh, I definitely think they can't go any further because teams are going to struggle to find people to employ. As far as I'm aware, for team members, crew, mechanics and the like, data, PR, I don't think it pays very well. I think like being an air steward or air stewardess, it's the glamour of the job is half of the appeal. So they don't feel they actually have to pay you that well. Yeah. So I suspect that they will start to struggle to get good people because good people, of course, which is what you want, are far easier to find jobs elsewhere that don't involve flying around the world. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah. Interesting. From a fan perspective, of course, you know, it's almost like the more the merrier. But it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, okay, so we've already strayed off my topic a little bit already, which is inevitable. But this is the sort of the meandering chat that we love to have. And I'm sure that the listeners are going to enjoy listening to you, Martin. And it's great to have you back on. So again, thank you very much indeed. Because I look back and it was the 1st of February when you were last on for a longest chat. So almost a year. Now, we're going to talk MotoGP 2022. Certainly have a little look forward, as we've just been doing, to 2023. But first, I just wanted to allow you, because I know you knew him personally, I just wanted you to have a chance to say a few words about our recently lost friend Andrew Wheeler yeah I mean Andrew when I for Motopod my first event I actually went to and tried to pretend I was a journalist for a weekend was MotoGP at Silverstone in 2010 David Emmett was absolutely fantastic and his photographer who my memory says was Scott Rogers but Scott Rogers I knew in the army so I might have got that wrong something like that Uh, that was the photographer who worked closely with David on Moto Matters at the time but Andrew was also very much part of that crew and I was introduced to him and we just hit it off Um, I'd been living in Bath I'd moved up north by then but I'd been living in Bath he grew up in Bath so we're talking about Moles nightclub and the like and bands we 
liked. We had similar taste in music and a similar sort of sense of humour. And we just really got on. So we stayed in touch through Twitter. I saw him again the following year at Silverstone. Then I moved out here in 14. And of course, he was coming out for the GPs. But what really sort of gave us a link was he was losing his wife, Emily, to cancer at the same time I was losing my mother to cancer. So we became a little sort of support network for each other. You know, when he wanted to talk to someone who didn't know his life intimately, but he knew could empathise because they were going through a similar experience. Um, Combine that with our love of cats, his widget, who is now being looked after by Rocky Wingwalker. And if anyone wants to see details of Andrew's, there is a GoFundMe running if you search on Facebook for Rocky Wingwalker, I think her name's Rachel, a friend of Andrew's, and she's been fantastic. Widget has stayed with her and her husband before when Andrew was away working, so Widget is now with them. Uh, she's 19, oh, um, wow. lovely little cat, but he, yeah. he lost Emily, then he lost Thor. He's had some health issues. He got bitten by a spider, which led to all sorts of complications. And of course, he recently gained his American citizenship and he didn't have the insurance cover at a level um, which would cover him there, which uh, we're not going to get into the politics of, um, you know, national healthcare systems. But yeah, it was a real, real shock. Yeah. Such a shock. I knew he'd had issues, but he was just so bursting with life force. Even when he was hacked off, he managed to be funny about being hacked off. Um, He talked about entering, you know, a professional chef competition in the States, their sort of master chef thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say we were similar. The two things that made Andrew really stand out was an incredible eye for a photograph. And as David pointed out recently, either on Facebook or Twitter, um, Andrew did a, a couple of, I don't think it was an entire season, but certainly a couple of meets where he just used an iPhone. And showed okay. how amazing they are, but it also helped you see that's the difference between me and normal mortals. And Andrew is he sees the frame, he knows how to frame a picture, where to place the rider. You know, I mean, some of the shots he's got, and there's an iconic photograph of him shaking hands of Valentino Rossi and handing over the sequence of shots he took looking at the corkscrew as Valentino overtook Casey in 2008 with that incredible, you know, yes, the gravel had good grip. Um, <laughs> Which now, of course, would have seen him penalised for exceeding track limits, but then was seen as quite fair. Yeah. And obviously, there was a little hiccup in a previous show where he was referred to as Ian Wheeler, but we were chuckling pre-show. Hands up for that. But it, th- there are two names that just in British motorcycle racing coverage or racing itself seem to be preeminent. Is the Wheelers, because you've got Andrew, dearly beloved and recently lost Ian Wheeler who's with Yamaha World Superbike team as their press officer formerly with Mark VDS Adam Wheeler who's on the Paddock Pass podcast and is both a GP and a motocross GP commentator and uh, reporter and then the other name you've got is Emmett with our friend David Emmett from Moto Matters Gavin Emmett from everyone knows Gavin from Dorna before and now BT Sport and then Sean Emmett who used to race and then stopped racing and did other things that we won't go into for legal reasons <laughs> so it's an easy mistake to make and it's just sometimes I just say like, I know you're one of the wheelers I just can't remember which you are um, <laughs> or Emmett's quite how Ian came into my mind as the name to give I just don't know but anyway he was uh, Ian Wheeler that is was uh, exceedingly generous to me on Twitter when I apologised on behalf of the pod or myself, really. So, yeah, that was a a slight shame. Very easy mistake to make. And I would sometimes refer to Adam Wheelie if I was messaging Neil Morrison or Stephen English on the paddock pass and I'd say, have a word with Andrew. And they'd send back and go, we don't have an Andrew. Oh, I mean Adam, you know, because (laughs) again, 
It's the Wheeler confusion. The great thing about Andrew Wheeler, Martin, I think, is that pure legacy, or that sheer legacy, I should say, of all of the photos that he took throughout that career. And, you know, they live on forever, don't they? And if there's ever a a measure of a person when they do pass away, it's the kind of the outpouring of grief and just people recollecting stories and memories and so on. And there's been an awful lot of that on social media. There's one side of social media that's actually quite good. Yeah, I'm sure you've been tapping into a lot of that stuff over the last week or so as well. Oh, definitely. Uh, another mutual friend, I can't remember, I think it was Beth Andrews said the photographs he had of Simoncelli in the, he, he had like a dark filter or it, maybe it was just a dark pit lane garage and it, a couple of shots of Simoncelli looking so thoughtful. And of course, after what happened to Marco Simoncelli, they became incredibly poetic almost. And yeah, it's a very good point. The other amazing skill he had was as a chef, and he gave Sharon and I a couple of tips, especially on how to cook fish, you know, baking paper and milk for um, sea bass fillets with tarragon and parsley inside that you make a little parcel. I mean, Mm. I would have never (laughs) thought that that's a valid way to cook a fish, but oh my goodness, it is superb. So yeah, he never did get around to doing a recipe book, but I'm sure there are lots of people around the world who were friends of Andrew's and... Yeah, who will have little cooking tips that they still use. And each time they use them, they can just think, cheers, bud. Yeah, moving on. It's a slight aside, so hopefully the listeners will give us a little bit of leeway on this one. But obviously, you're Qatar-based, so tell me about life in Qatar over the last few weeks with the World Cup being in town. Because whilst I'm not a massive football fan, I do watch the World Cup. Quite an event, wasn't it? What a final that was. Yeah, it's probably, it's the best final I can remember, because apparently I watched 66, but I was like six months old. So I, say, <laughs> I obviously <laughs> yeah. don't remember anything about it. I don't remember 70, which is another iconic one, the Brazil-Italy with Pelé and yep. that incredible um, Carlos Alberto goal where they just knock it around and and then he comes thundering in. But I never saw it at the time. And I believe the actual, the game wasn't as exciting all the way through as this one was. It was amazing. It was incredible. Neither team could have complained if they'd lost. No. It was a wonderful event. Um, I'd never been to a World Cup before. I'd never been to a major football tournament before. It was incredibly well handled and organised. It was incredibly safe. Everybody who came here, I would suggest, other than those who came here with a pre-existing agenda, will have left going, wow, that was fantastic experience. You had people walking back, couldn't get a taxi, trying to walk to a, a, the next metro station because the one by the stadium was really busy, getting a bit lost. And there are Qataris coming out from their houses and inviting these guys into their majlis. Now, the majlis is the, it's almost like a um, an outhouse or it's mm-hmm. a, an out, like a, an annex and it's where men can you know, meet other men, their friends, without them seeing their wife uncovered and all that. And whatever people think about that, it's a cultural, religious thing. Yep. It's not strictly enforced here by any means. In fact, there's no laws at all about uh, what women wear. Some married women wear a veil. Plenty don't. Plenty of Qatari couples will hold hands. The only law is for the men. The men have to wear their thobe, their national dress. And unless they're, uh, they have a uniform for work, like a flight suit or, mm-hmm. you know, engineers cover or if they're going to a sports club. And I thought it was a bit strange. And uh, a Qatari friend explained to me, it's like your school uniform. It's so everyone's equal. There's no difference between them. So actually, when you look at it in those terms, you think, ah, okay. So the men have to wear the white thobe and headdress. Uh, They always look immaculately clean. But anyway, I I don't want to go on too long. But there's four main points. 
the one thing that tarnished it for all of us out here was the particularly the British media coverage, which I thought was an absolute disgrace, considering four years before we went to Russia, who within the preceding 10 years had invaded two neighbouring countries and nobody said a word. Yeah. And Gary Lineker's accepted that and he said, we should have been more vocal about Russia. And I'm thinking, no, you're there to report a sports tournament. I don't think you should be that vocal about that sort of thing at all. But four things. One, they should never have been awarded it. FIFA were corrupt. And I think the key point there is FIFA were corrupt. Yeah. And if FIFA were not corrupt, then no one could bribe their way to get awarded a tournament. From the impression I get, most World Cups and most Olympics involve a element of let's make the committee feel really special. You know, the, the Olympic yeah. Committee visits, they get given Rolex watches and, you know, oh, this is the car for you to use this weekend. You can take it home when you've finished. It's a Ferrari. You know, you think, <laughs> really? Come on. But that's what they do. And, yeah. you know, Russia and Qatar are obviously playing the game better than anyone else. The second thing is about the migrant workers, you know, about these deaths. And if you listen to the, all I'm saying to people is just listen to the language used by reporters and you will hear things like, some sources say that it could be as high as 6,500 workers that have died on World Cup construction projects in Qatar. And all that sticks in your mind is 6,500. Yeah. Some sources, many of whom have agendas against Qatar and the Middle East, say it may be up to, well, six is up to 6,500. Oh, exactly, yeah. The International Labour Organization, which is a UN organization, have been in and they've heaped praise on the progress that's been made over the last 15, 20 years, especially since the World Cup was awarded. And it's been a power for good. It really has. However, another thing about the accidents, if they're driving to work in a pickup truck and have an accident and four lads are killed, does that count as a World Cup related death or not? And that's why it's so difficult to quantify. Yeah. The other point is we have on our compound here, we have a maintenance team and there's some very, very skilled Indian electricians. But when they're testing something, they'll get two bare wires and they'll put it in the socket, check it works before they bother to put a plug on and say, yeah, that's fine and leave it. And they're very professional, but they don't meet the health and safety levels that would be expected in a European country because they come from cultures where to do it quicker means you make more money and you can do more work. So, however, on every construction site, they wear hard hats, they wear Harvey's jackets, they have protected gear. And what's never mentioned is every single person in this country, visitor, resident or citizen, has access to one of the best universal healthcare systems on the planet, bar none. Mm. I've spoken to NHS doctors who've been out here to look and they've said oh my goodness we waited 10 years to get one machine that does something they've had 12 machines for 20 years they're so well resourced the lgbtq thing yeah in an ideal world everything would be equal no one would be judged uh, 72 countries and this is according to rory stewart who does the uh, the rest is politics podcast with alistair campbell Rory Stewart says 72 countries, it's still illegal to be gay in those countries. That's a third of the world's countries. Yeah. And yet the way some of the coverage went, you'd think it was just Qatar. And Qatar never said anything about rainbow armbands. That was FIFA. It was FIFA's rules. And for the Germans with their hands over their mouths and all the stuff that went on about Meta Ozil, who his teammates had sent to Coventry because they saw him as a foreigner, an immigrant. He was from Turkish stock, so they ostracised him. A lot of those team members are still in that squad, and they're the ones putting their hands over their mouths. And then finally, I think, why was it so vented at them? And the only thing I can think, having heard, this is football journalists, describe uh, they were criticising David Beckham for getting into bed with an evil dictatorship. And I thought, you have no idea, clearly, 
you should stick to flat back fours and complaining about VAR decisions. This is not an evil dictatorship, but therein lies the crux. It's not a democracy. And this arrogance of the West of our system is democracy, therefore it must be the best, therefore anyone who doesn't have it is wrong. I think you live in Qatar, it's one of the safest countries, I think it's in the top three safest countries in the world under the UN judgment, the league tables, if they have such things. Yeah, uh, It's very prosperous. Yes, it's small, but it punches way above its weight. They've done a heck of a lot of, they've basically become the Switzerland of the Middle East. This is where you come if you have an enemy you want to negotiate with because it's a safe place. Why would someone here look at Britain and America and what's gone in the last five or 10 years and think, hmm, democracy, that's what we need in our country. I mean, we've made an absolute mockery of it, but we've had a thousand years for this system to evolve and it suits our character. The Middle East, I mean, Qatar has been a country for 51, 52 years. 1971, they got their independence. Let's give them a chance. Eh? I just thought it was hugely disproportionate. And I and the, every other expat I hear, I've heard mention it is disgusted. And, and Gary Lineker going from, for me, probably the most admired sports person on the planet, because he epitomised total commitment and competitiveness, but without being Machiavellian or being nasty. I mean, we love Rossi, but mm. let's face it, Rossi he played some dirty games mind games with people Gary Lineker just got on and did it right up till this World Cup and I don't know if he's aware and I'd love someone to tell him who knows him that his name now in the Middle East he's an icon for racist Islamophobia they can't understand it. They're like, what have we done wrong? And a Qatari friend said, this is just a finish. Sorry, I've been going on so long. We want to talk about bikes. but <laughs> It's interesting. A Qatari friend said to me, he said, is it because we're rich that they feel it's okay to criticise us? If we were a poor country, I bet they wouldn't. He said, if this World Cup had happened in Palestine, where they have many of the same laws we have here, do you think they'd have said it in the same way? And I said to him, no, I suspect not. Mm. And he said, it's safe in the West If you're a white, heterosexual, married male with a job, it's okay for everybody to rip into you because it's like, yeah, well, you haven't got anything going against you. Like, well, they might have actually. (laughs) But I thought that was a valid point. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's just because they're rich that everyone thinks it's okay. We can weigh into them. But yeah, uh, there's a lot of raised eyebrows here at the coverage and I found it disgusting. Yeah. Just by people who don't really know what they're talking about and don't look at the whole picture. But when Gary Lineker speaks, the world listens or a lot of the world, a lot more than listens when you or I speak. Yeah, for me, it's because I really, really like politics, but I'm always cautious not to really sort of stray into that area on Motopod. We're talking about bike racing, but it's very interesting to get your take on it as a person who lives in that country. And I mean, certainly there was a, a certain degree of backlash against the Linekers, and it wasn't just him. I mean, I think Gary Neville's another one, isn't he? Um, yeah. uh, you, you know, about applying Western cultural values to a place that isn't in the West and doesn't have that culture or those values necessarily. That's not to say they're better or worse. They're just different. Uh, I mean, for me, that's what makes the world an interesting place. There is a debate to be had, and Jim and I have discussed this certainly when things like, for example, Kazakhstan has come onto the calendar for this year. Yeah. There's a sensible, grown-up, good-natured debate to have about some of these things as to whether or not countries should be getting some of these events. But as you said, Martin, I mean, it was FIFA that made the decision, and we all 
know what that decision was based upon. So you can't blame the Qataris for that. And I thought from the bit of the coverage, because I didn't watch all of it, I'm not an avid football fan uh, by any means. me neither. I kind of watched the quarters and the semis and obviously the final. And I'm very glad I watched the final because that was probably a once in a lifetime game to have witnessed firsthand. But as an event, I thought it looked impeccably well run. Everybody was well behaved. I'm sure the absence of alcohol sales helped to make it a much more enjoyable event for a lot of people. Oh, but when they were getting stick over that, I thought, hang on, the Premier League have had alcohol banned in stadiums for years. And the other thing that nobody reported, that did not come from the Qataris. Because you know they were going to sell it at Budweiser yeah, stalls. Yeah. And then two days before, and a friend out here who, uh, I've got to be careful because I don't want to identify someone for talking out of turn, but they work at the embassy, the British embassy. The British, Dutch, German, and I think French, there was one other, police liaison teams begged FIFA to not allow alcohol in the stadiums. They said, you will have trouble mm. because you get trouble when very drunk people meet very sober people. And you will have some people who won't drink out of respect for the culture or because they're part of that culture. And then you'll have our lot who will. And it was the Western European police liaison teams who really drove that. Please do not do this. We don't have it at our football grounds. You know, you can go to a bar at half time. But you can't take that beer with you. Yeah. Their theory being, yeah, OK, you could go to a pub, but you won't be allowed into a football stadium like you won't be allowed on an aircraft if you're reeling drunk. Because yeah. security will say, no, you're not coming in. Season ticket holder or not, you can get stuff. Yeah. Interesting. A great sort of context, I think. And, you know, uh, useful comments when we talk about some of the events in MotoGP and World Superbike and so on that go to some of these countries that, you know, perhaps you might question the way that they run things in certain respects. But I think we have to be careful. It mustn't be because it's just they don't do it like us. No, exactly. I, I totally 100% agree with that. And that, that I certainly do subscribe to this argument that if you want to encourage certain kinds of changes, then it's far better to do that from the inside than the outside. But I mean, I'm with you on the whole sort of Gary Lineker uh, and others front in terms of the sort of the rank hypocrisy, because so often it's, you know, do as I say, don't do as I do with a lot of yeah. the things that they sort of bang their drums about. We still haven't gotten to bikes, but yeah, it's the old thing of we. We need to be careful what we preach. Yes. And over the course of the last 20 years, when I've been sort of taking notice, liberal imperialism hasn't really worked very well in <laughs> various chunks of the world. So best left alone. OK, Martin, let's talk about motorbike racing, because that's why we're here. Yes. Um, we've discussed a few questions that we're going to talk about so that we're both well prepared. So uh, let's start off with looking back at 2022 then. I know you've listened to the shows that Jim and I did recently where we discussed our yeah. sort of top picks in MotoGP and Moto2. We haven't got to Moto3 yet, but that's coming. So let me ask you this way. You might have more to say, but who stood out for you sort of top three wise in MotoGP and Moto2 respectively and possibly Moto3? You can check those in as well if you want. Yeah, well, in my MotoGP top three, and I really had to think about this and I sort of went back and looked and I thought, Okay, Alicia Sparkro is my number three because I, th- I know he came fourth in the title, but it was an unprecedented season on what was, although people kept saying, oh, it's nearly there. I don't think anyone realised just how there the Aprilia was. Mm. And until we got to the flyaways, it pretty much looked like it was the next best thing to a Ducati to have on the entire grid. 
I was going to say it later on, but I might as well just say it now about Aleish. We did a Motopod show oh, many, many moons ago when I was a regular host. And I love statistics for being able to highlight an otherwise unseen truth. Although you have to be very careful, as we all know, yeah. about how you set them. Because they can also, well, you know, there's lies, damn lies, and then there's statistics. You know, whenever someone says, well, if you look back since 2008, and you think, hang on, why are you looking at 2008? Oh, that was the credit crunch. You know, it can give skewed totals. Yeah. Alicia had written in saying can you explain why and he listed a four or five riders who you know rarely score points let alone could win a race what are they there for and we went through and actually in their defense said the entire grid bar two were world champions at some level you know cal crutchlow had been world super sport so not in the gp paddock but they'd all been world champions except and i think it was eugene laverty and alaish so I looked into Alaysh's background and thought, because he'd won the Spanish CEV, which was mm-hmm. called an international race series because they had other people from other nationalities way back when. Then he went into 125s, then 250s, then into MotoGP, initially with Ducati, I think it was Aspar or someone, but he'd never come higher than 12th at the end of a season until he came 7th on the NGM Ford Racing Yamaha CRT bike. and. Yep. Everyone went, wow. So I'm thinking someone in, or there are some people in that paddock who are such good talent spotters. What did they see in him? Because in a way, Fabio Quattararo's trajectory has been very similar. He won CEV. And I remember Harry Lloyd going on saying, you've got to look at his kid. He's absolutely amazing. Moto3, I was like, eh. Not really impressing me at all. Moto2, I think he won one race in Moto2. Yeah, one or two, but I think one got disallowed, yeah. And and look at him now. Yeah. So there are people there who see something that they recognise, okay, he might not do great in the lower classes. I mean, Juan Mir, amazing in Moto3. Moto2 was like, eh, but then becomes world champion at MotoGP, albeit an askew circuit. So so that was my thing for Alessia Spargro. I could have cried for him at Catalonia. <laughs> yes, oh yes it's, it's a dumb thing to do but none of us can ever say we haven't done dumb things but then of course we're mere mortals and and that's why I don't think he is ever going to challenge for a title again I think that was his best shot this year and he Mm. fell some distance short having said that he's won a race no one can ever take that away you know he's won a race and I think it's probably very important to him that he got there before Paul who may also not win a a, well a MotoGP race but Yeah. yeah it was incredible in two and, and I think no one could argue for anyone putting this fella at number one. But for two, I put Peko Banyaya because he is world champion. Uh, the greatest comeback we've ever seen at the Premier class. Yeah. And during the comeback, fell off. You know, the Mategi fall off where he didn't really need to be pushing that hard at that stage. So you thought, oh, is this an Alvaro Bautista 2019? You know, is he going to just keep <laughs> falling off now and that's it, it's gone? And no, he, he kept sort of not rediscovering himself or reinventing himself, but he just kept rallying. And, you know, people can get as upset as they like about the drink driving. I don't think there should be any professional penalty. He should be penalised by the police force in the country in which he committed the offence, which is Ibiza, so Spanish authorities, mm-hmm. I guess, in accordance with the laws of the land. He shouldn't be let off because he's a personality that's known at all. But, you know, it, it should be in conjunction with the seriousness of the crime. No one was hurt, including him, thankfully. So, yeah, if that was UK, what, he'd be banned for a year and have 10 points in his licence when he got it back. So yeah. he wouldn't be allowed to ride. But, you know, if it doesn't affect your work, I don't think anyone should be drink driving. Of course I don't. It's a very stupid and dangerous thing to do. And the Dennis Rodman crash helmet tribute thing was just bizarre. 
frankly. Mm. I mean, I've probably gone a bit over the top with my criticism on that one, but just, as you said, just a very odd thing for the team to allow to happen. Yeah. There was a storm around Banyar at that time anyway, because of the Ibiza incident. It was just all a bit, yeah, what's going on, guys? You know, and it was almost dangerously distracting. If that had been Romano Fanati or Lorenzo, you could imagine him sort of stirring the pot and going, F you, I'm doing this because I don't care. But Pecco comes across as, as a seriously nice and thoughtful guy. Yeah. He's a young kid. He's still, you know, he's only what early mid 20s somebody in the team should have said eh, you might admire his basketball playing but you know yeah so tricky one but i thought a firm number two and my number one was fabio quattro mm-hmm. i knew the number one and then it was just who do i put two and then a real sort of confusion over who i put three but that bike had no right to be as close to the title as he managed to put it and when you look at his teammate you know okay franco had his second worst season ever i think mm. or possibly his worst season I think it probably Premier was his worst, actually, yeah. Yeah, so maybe that's a bit of an unfair comparison. But I think this season convinced me of his top flight credentials more than 21, almost. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to know what you think, Martin. I think, actually, although he didn't win the championship, I think his 2022 season was actually better than his championship campaign. Yeah, because he was such a, under such enormous pressure for the entire second half, of the, well, for the whole season, but especially the second half, watching his lead be chipped away and chipped away. And I thought his attitude going into Valencia was, yeah, that my chances are really, really slim, but I've just got to do what I can do. I can't go crazy. And anyway, it was a dreadful race, but, you know, they always are, aren't they, at Valencia? Yeah. I thought honourable mentions. I know Marco Bezzecchi's got a lot of attention, but for me... Luca Marini was the standout of the also runs. He scored 10 top 10 finishes to Bezza's six. He only had one DNF all season. And that was, I think that was Malaysia, wasn't it? So we yeah. nearly got to the end of the season with him. You know, he finished the season nine points of his teammate and he comes across as so clever. Plus he is living in the shadow of his half brother. Yeah. And the amazing thing is the parent they share is their mother. So he hasn't inherited Graciano Ross's DNA or genes. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's extraordinary. Now, okay, he's obviously grown up with his older brother and they're, they're obviously very close and they got on very well. You know, he's grown up watching him, so he's been immersed in motorcycle racing, no doubt. I don't know what his father does, what ex-Mrs. Ross's or what Mrs. Marini's second husband does for a living. Maybe he's a bike racer as well and she's the one who was in that world with them. But yeah, I thought Marini was just so impressive and just quietly going about it. I think Betzeki's a great lad as well and I think he's got a great future, but Marini impressed me. Yeah, I hope I'm not misremembering but I'm pretty sure I had Marini in 10th or 9th place overall on my top 10 riders of the list so he wasn't even mm. really an honourable mention for me I thought he was outstanding I really yeah. did and he's one of these riders that you see him getting better and better every year as well which is obviously what you want to see so yeah high hopes for the VR46 team as a whole next year or sorry this year I should say now but yeah Marini's very impressive I think the one that didn't quite make the top three and didn't quite make the honourable mention for me as well is Brad Binder whose Sundays were just outstanding pretty much every race weekend. But his Saturdays are so bad that he's often, you know, up against it. But I'm a slightly biased because I just really like the kid. I mean, when Espargaro, who, in my opinion, had the overtake of the season by a country mile. Yes, Quattararo's pass on Jack at the new chicane at Austria was great, but it wasn't wow. Whereas Alej coming past Jack and Brad, two of the hardest 
cornering passing guys on the grid and then when they asked brad about it he said what do you think and hats off to the guy <laughs> but not an australian accent obviously it would have been a south african accent so yeah <laughs> it was like yeah perfect response yeah i thought it was brilliant how much fun do you think that kgm team's going to be next year martin with both miller and bender in the same team as each other the press conference is going to be very entertaining it will yeah. be fascinating to see how they get on because Jack I think has played a brilliant number two he's very much been to Peko I think as Colin Edwards was to Valentino and the Yamaha team he's accepted that there's a number one and it's not him he's as competitive as he can be but at the same time they seem to have got on very well and people have said oh yeah of course Peko's sad to see Jack go because he doesn't want someone who's actually going to challenge him and I think oh no on his day you know first race of the season Jack's not going to concede to Peko Bang but I think they work well together and they got on and probably an element of that is Pecco is aware that you know Jack is has accepted the number two status well he's going to go into KTM and probably try and assert himself but I wonder how abrasive that relationship will become I hope it doesn't I know people keep saying we need rivalries we need some hatred and spite I don't for myself I don't need it at all I find it just as compelling when they smile and shake hands at the end if the racing's good yeah, no, that's a fair comment. I mean, I personally think it's quite nice to have a, you know, a fairly fierce rivalry, but I don't necessarily think that works so well if it's an inter-team situation because then things just get nasty. Think about sort of Rossi and Lorenzo and the wall going up back in the day and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Jack Miller is he seems to galvanise a team around him, doesn't he, and create a very happy environment. And it will be interesting, specifically talking about the Works Ducati squad uh, this year, that camp sort of divides into Anaya's side of the garage and then Pecco side of the garage and there's you know an unhealthy amount of rivalry going on there and a sort of a, a fracture in that previously very very happy overall team dynamic so that's one that Ducati need to watch out for I think for sure yeah we'll talk about Ennio Bastianini later but mm. yeah I'm unsure about what not in a negative way I'm, I just simply don't know I don't think we've seen enough of him yet to see what kind of character he is when he's not the underdog. Do you remember Marco Melandri? I mean, classic case of yeah. in, in a satellite team, you know, I mean, that absolutely iconic Phillip Island race in 06. You know, the guy was a superstar. Right at the point he got put in a factory team and then he just crumbled. In fact, didn't he end up, they, Ducati sent him to a psychiatrist for a while to try and yeah. sort him out. And we've seen it quite a lot of times. People argued that with Dovi, that when he went to uh, HRC, you know, on the JR Scott, he was amazing. So they promoted him and then obviously they tried sacking him and he said, no, my contract says if I come above this many points, you know, you keep me on. And they did for one more year when they brought Casey in. Yeah. But then obviously Dovi disproved that when he went to Ducati. But I don't know. I think some riders just seem happier in the smaller, more intimate, more family-orientated satellite team. And Bassini looked so happy with the Grassini crew last year. Yeah, be interesting to see. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not as if Bastianini was on second-rate equipment, really. No. In that Grassini. So, I mean, it might have been the previous year's bike. Yeah, he was. I think he was on a twenty. Uh, he was on a twenty-one bike. I think. Yeah. No, he was because at the beginning of the season when he won the first race and Pecco was saying, "Well, it's easy for him. All he's got to do is climb on, put fuel in, yeah. dial in last year's settings, and then tweak it." Yeah. We've got a brand new bike. We don't have base settings for yet. Yeah. No, he was. He was on an older bike so that'll be interesting for him yeah okay so that's MotoGP then and both you me and Jim are all sort of on the same page there with Quattraro in first place so that's interesting so let's have a quick top three on Moto2 then so what have you got by way of comparison to what Jim and I came up with okay now I didn't actually do top threes for the small 
smaller classes, so I'm going to have to think on my feet here. But you did ask me to talk about standout moments and riders. So I'll do with that. Okay, so I found it very interesting that Pedro Acosta, after his phenomenal 2021 in Moto3, where he was Marquez-like, found it a lot tougher than he and many others expected. And I think in a really weird way, him breaking his femur in a motocross, I think it was motocross training accident in the summer, actually took an awful lot of pressure off him. And I think that might not be my original thought. I've got a feeling Akiyo said something along those lines. We were trying to tell him, there's no rush. You don't have to do it this year. Learn the bike, you know, learn how the tracks work with this bike because there's a bigger gap now from most Moto3 to Moto2 than there was with the Hondas. You know, they're far more powerful triumphs now. So I think it might have done him a bit of a favour. I loved seeing the rise of Ayagura. He's just, there's something really likeable about the kid and his relentlessness. You know, I think he picked up momentum a little bit too late. The other fascinating thing was Celestine Vietti just what happened i seriously worry about how that lad's winter will be and i hope that valentino rossi and the ucho and the other vr46 senior bosses take some time to sit down with that lad and coach him through what went wrong why it went wrong how to put it right and just concentrate on making him feel good about himself because i mean he just had a shocker from when did it start going wrong i'm trying to remember which race it was but it was about a third of the way through the season everyone's like wow he's on it he's looking so good and it and it felt here we go again it's another of these mop head vr46 ranch production line of really really fast italian kids and then he just went and Augusto Fernandes, you know, I mean, he was relentless. Yeah. He wasn't that spectacular, I didn't think, but he did what he had to do. Yeah, he really showed his experience, I think, didn't he? Just sort of ground out a highly effective in the end championship winning season. But as you said, I think I said more or less the same thing when Jim and I did the sort of the top 10 Moto2 show. It was not really terribly spectacular, but it was certainly very effective. I might be misremembering this. Uh, I should be a politician with lines like that. <laughs> I can't remember if it was your Jim that Ayagura appeared in both your top 10 and your wooden spoon league. Uh, no, that was actually, that was Jim uh, with Aaron Kinnett, as I remember. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Aaron Kinnett, um, I, I've got to be honest, I think he's always going to be an early man. I, I'm not even sure if he's going to, he needs to do something different to get a MotoGP gig because those seats are getting few and far between. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of talented kids coming up and I, I think Aaron Kinnett might struggle. I think we might see him crossing to uh, Ian Wheeler's lot, you know, we'll see the bike. <laughs> Yeah, reasonably soon. I don't know. One thing I did want to say though about Ayagura is I must admit, and this is I'm subscribed to David Emmett's approach. And I think he, and therefore in his hanging on to his coattails, I also share a slightly outlying position. The lunge Arbolino, I kind of understand why he did it. Okay, go on. Yep. He went into that race in Malaysia, three and a half points ahead of Fernandes. Now, at the point he made that lunge, Fernandes was sixth. And I'm pretty sure his pit board, I can't remember if it was, I haven't actually gone back and re-watched the race to see if it shows it, but I'm pretty sure his pit board would have been telling him where Fernandez was. Mm-hmm. He'd said all along he had a really poor record at Valencia and he had no confidence that he could score big points at Valencia. So he had a chance to go from 20 points compared to Fernandez's. what would it have been in uh, six? It'd have been 16, 13, 10. 
So he instead of 10 points, so that would have been 30 and a half points, he could go to 18 and a half points. That gets much closer to putting it back in his own power. So if they're at Valencia, if Augusto Fernandez is leading, then Agura would only have to be, I think, fourth. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to be right behind him. So I think that's why he went for it. Unfortunately, he cocked it up. So it looks like a stupid mistake. But as an amateur historian, the amount of times people have done things that you think you've only looked like a genius because you got away with it. Yes. And, and often it's down to luck. And he just pushed that, you know, when we all know that fractions they're dealing in, they're all riding on the edge of the cliff for the entire race. Yeah. And he just pushed it over. And somebody, I think it was either your gym, made the point you felt he underestimated just how determined Arbolino was. Mm. So, yeah. And I think Tony Arbolino will be one to watch for next season. Yes, I agree. I understood why he did it. He only looked dumb because he cocked it up. Yeah. I must hold my hands up, uh, Martin. You know, I was very critical of the move that Aguirre tried, but I totally accept, you know, the rationale of what you've just said. And, you know, obviously David Emmett has had a similar opinion on it. And let's be honest, they're making these decisions in less than a fraction of a second almost, aren't they? So it probably felt like the right move to go for the the split second that he made that choice. But for me, I just, he came from so far back. It just looked like a doomed manoeuvre right from the get-go. But trying to head into Valencia a week around for him with a much bigger points haul in Sepang, would have made an awful lot of sense so I completely understand and get that so um, yeah. and Jim like you is a big big well I mean, I mean I'm an Aguirre fan as well he just needs to sort out his Saturdays he's a bit like Brad Binder I, I made that yeah. comparison in the last show that if they could just get a bit more effective on a Saturday then they could almost be getting into unstoppable territory come Sunday he and Takanakagami need to get together and have a baby because that baby well if they have twins one of them will be crap at qualifying like Aguirre and crap on Sunday like Nakagami army but the other one will be a world champion so watch out for the nakagura baby then yeah exactly nicely done there thank you that's better than ogama <laughs> i mean jorge martin is another one incredibly quick on that single lap ability to break lap records getting pole and then either falling off or just kind of mysteriously fading during the race yeah so where do you stand on my sort of slightly perhaps bold claim in my top 10 in Moto2 with regards to Alonso Lopez being my number one pick? He kind of came out of left field for me because he's not someone I would have put in at all. But what he did and considering the circumstances in which he arrived was pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes when people are thrown in like that, it's almost anything you do that isn't really rubbish people go wow that's brilliant having said that he just kept seemed to be getting better and better and better through the season mm. how he'll do with a pre-season and a build-up and everything remains to be seen it will be interesting and it's almost there's no excuses now now he didn't need any last season because he did so well in fact didn't he get did he get best rookie uh i'm not even sure if he was classed as a rookie to be honest no because he yeah he started before hadn't he but yeah yeah I, i've got to be honest i think moto 2 is packed because the moto gp loss of the suzuki team and we haven't had an, a replacement for them yet so you know they've gone down in numbers we've only got augusto fernandez moving up mm. moto 2 Two is you know you've got Ethan Guevara and Sergio Garcia both coming up from Moto Three, both really fast kids. Is um, Fodja coming up? Yeah, he, I think is. he is. He's, isn't he? he's yeah. into the trans team. Yeah. So it's like that is going to be packed with talent that Moto Two paddock next season. So yeah. I mean, for anyone to stand out is going to be really something. Yeah. And a lot of MotoGP riders, I suspect, maybe not for next year, but for the year after, are going to be looking over their shoulders, thinking, "Yeah, who am I going to get dobbed out for?" to let a young thruster come up. 
Well, I think there's, yeah, a good three or four, actually, in MotoGP that we could probably name now, but that being too contentious, that are probably already looking over their shoulder, Martin. I think, I mean, we'd, perhaps we won't mention them. Well, anyone whose age starts in a three... Well, quite, yeah. ...needs to be looking over their shoulder unless they're busy polishing their multiple world championship title <laughs> trophies. Yeah. Um, Moto3? Yeah. Let's have a chat well, about three. Talking about incredible lunges that it only looks dumb if you cock it up, John McPhee didn't. And that is probably, for me, the overtake of all three seasons. Four, sorry, Moto E as well. Yeah. John McPhee's lunge at Sepang, you know, from fifth to first, and he pulled it off. Uh, it was just fantastic. You know, he'd been he'd had a miserable weekend. He actually considered Walker because he knew he wasn't being re-signed for the next year. Um, bless him, he's off to World Supersport, I think. Yes, he is. Yep. Yeah. I hope he does well. He comes across as a lovely lad. And I know he stepped up to Moto2 before and it didn't work out. Whether that was him or the equipment, I don't know. But maybe a combination. But, you know, it was just brilliant to see. It, it was a bit like Alex Rins winning the final race for Suzuki, mm. which is both a tribute to them and a middle finger up to Hamamatsu management, without a shadow of doubt. Yeah. Um, I thought, I mean, Ethan Guevara was absolutely standout. After the first two or three races, he just got his head down and his record from there was just phenomenal. I thought Garcia and Foggia, both good supporting acts, both had tricky mid-seasons. They both started strongly, tailed off, started coming back into, I think, didn't Garcia get three, the last three races? I think he was third, third and third or something so yeah he recovered strongly but that middle of the season he just kept falling off and Foggy was very strange he was either podium or struggling to get a point story of Foggy's motor three career really yeah red hot one weekend and then missing in action the following weekend and of course he gets to race with Darren Binder again next season so that'll oh be interesting <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I I like both the Binder brothers and I think Darren gets some unfair flack at times. At the same time, you know, dive bomb Darren and all that or dive bomb Binder. Yeah. At the same time, yeah, he's pulled some dumb moves. But, you know, Valentino Rossi pulled some dumb moves. He took Casey Stoner out when he was on the Ducati and it, it just looked like a dumb thing to do yeah. and very un-Rossi-like. So I hope that Darren has a good season. Uh, going back to Mojo 3, the one I keep watching, I'm not a gambling person, but I had a bet many, many years ago on a horse that got withdrawn, so we got the money back, and this was in 2015, so I thought, oh, I don't know, I'll put it on Lorenzo to win the MotoGP title, and of course he did, so I, I got, it was only like 30 quid back, and then I thought I'll put two on bike racing and one on a football thing, oh, I don't know, oh, maybe Liverpool go and win the European Cup again, or the Champions League again, and of course they did, so I can't get rid of this bloody money, <laughs> but I put a tenner on Onchi to win last season, the Mo three title Dennis Onchu has got something I'm convinced of it this is goes back to the talent spotting this is why I'm not a talent spotter in the MotoGP paddock I guess apart from the fact I've never applied for a job doing that I don't even know what it's called there's something about him that I keep waiting to click into gear get the chain and cog properly aligned and absolutely propel him but I thought this season well this has got to be his last season in Moto3 he's just too tall he's getting too big yeah, and yet he's staying mm. on the plus side though he's going back to Akiayo and yeah. we know what Akiayo can do with most of the riders he gets and I think on Chu's issues 
are not talent. And I think Anshu's issues are those which Akiyo has proved to be phenomenally successful in the past at being able to sort out. So I really hope, and, and actually I think this is a, probably a pretty good year not to go up to Moto2, as we mentioned earlier. And just that going back to Ayagura, I think the reason he doesn't want to go to LCR Honda, which he had the option to, which would have seen Nakagami heading off for another job somewhere else or becoming a test rider. I think he thought, nah, I'm going to give you guys a year to sort that bike out. So between Rins, Marquez, Mir and Nakagami, he's probably thinking, now you've got a year to sort it out, then I'll give it a go. Yeah. Because I suspect he will be going up in 2024. Certainly not going to do his career any harm not being on that Honda this year, I think. No, exactly. So, yeah, I'm sort of... I don't know what's going to happen in Moto3. We always end up, it seems, with some kid that Harry will probably know about or whoever whoever does the close watching of the um, CEV. Far more than the CIV, it seems, will know who's coming in. We've got Scott Ogden's coming back, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, what's his name? The Aussie lad. Oh, Joel Kelso? Joel Kelso. He showed flashes of, of something special. Be interesting to see. Yeah. You can bet your bollocks to a barn dance. There's going to be a couple of really, really fast Spanish and Italian kids coming in that we as well i don't follow their national series particularly closely so you know who knows and maybe somebody like danny holgado came in i think as the uh, cv champion from the previous year didn't really pull anything too far out did he no he, and he did very well and i know they weren't sure but they didn't want to bring him that quickly but they had to because he will be allowed to run next year but of course it's 18 now yeah so actually there probably won't be a huge influx of kids coming in you're right martin yeah because we're gonna have this sort of funny little stagger aren't we but whilst the rules and the, the years sort themselves out yeah that's going to create a bottleneck at cv yeah. civ Yes, it will give those lads two more years experience than they would otherwise add possibly three and then they're all going to be trying to come in so yeah it's going to make for some strange seasons over the next two or three years yeah I must just say a real honourable mention to Michael Laverty's Vision Track team A for getting that team up and running I know it was what was left of the Patronus squad in terms of getting getting two riders out on the grid and Scott Ogden in particular had a I think a fantastic rookie year and Josh Watley a little bit more under the radar it's true but much younger and less experienced, I guess, as a result of that, quietly went about putting a pretty solid season together. So again, I'm really looking forward to see what those two guys can achieve uh, this coming season. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Michael Laverty's. I think he's an absolutely stand-up guy. I was lucky enough to get to interview him and John out here in Qatar in the past when they've been out. As I say, I'm a huge fan of Michael Laverty. In fact, the the whole family, I think they're all stand-up guys. And I wish him every success. I always enjoy listening to him or watching him on BT Sport. So, Martin, looking forward to this season then, uh, and I'm thinking sort of MotoGP specifically, are there, Yeah, I mean, I say three things, that was just a, a number, but what are the few things, let's say, that you're particularly looking forward to seeing unfold as the season gets going and progresses? Yeah, well, one is Brad Bender sorting out his damn qualifying, I hope. <laughs> yeah. I honestly think that there is something remarkably resilient and capable about him. I'm not sure he's a Marquez level genius, 
but I think he's everything else is at 99%. And there's not many people who can put everything together to that level. So I think he may be a Marquez level genius because I mean, that damn, the, the race was it, it wasn't this season, was it last season where he finished the race at Austria? Oh, yeah, on slicks Austria. in the wet for like three and a half laps. And he was basically ice skating. I mean, it was wow, you know. And, and someone said he should be disqualified, he exceeded track limits on the last lap. Yeah, like, that's yeah, always whatever. <laughs> no, give it, I think they did give him a three second penalty penalty but he won by like 11 seconds so it made no difference yeah so that's one thing Yamaha sorting out their damn bike because I think if they find where that power went to between a test at Mazzano and then the end of season test at Valencia where Morbidelli, Quattro and Cal Crutchlow went hang on it wasn't like this when we tested at Mazzano where's that gone and I've not heard whether they I, I, I know um Massimo Marigali, I think, said, yeah, we're pretty sure there was a problem and we're working night and day to make sure we know what it was and to put it right before the Sepang test or the next... I think it's Sepang next, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is, yeah. So... Yeah, whether that's PR talk or not, I don't know. But I hope they sort that out. And I hope Morbidelli sorts his, his act out because I think he's a great kid. But at the same time, if he doesn't, I think we get top rack in 2024. And that's something I'd love to see. Yeah. So, yeah okay, that's interesting you should say that because I've been going on about this a lot on the show. And I, you need to sort of really follow World Superbike reasonably closely, I think, to see just what an otherworldly talent top rack is. But I mean, have you caught much World Superbike this year? Because I know your time is somewhat limited. Not as much as I probably should have done. I'm Unfortunately, it became very much like GP500 in the late 90s for me for many up until about basically two or three years ago because Johnny Ray was doing a McDoing. And, and and it's only because him and his package were so much better than everyone else. And he's a remarkable rider. And so I'm taking nothing away from Johnny whatsoever. But I turn it on. Yeah, I'd have missed the start. Johnny would be halfway around the lap. He, he's six or seven bike lengths out front. I think, OK, well, that's that done. Yeah. And I just stop watching. You know, Chas Davis could occasionally beat him at Aragon, but that was pretty much it. So unless he had a problem, which he very rarely had. So so then the last couple of years, it's been really good. You know, we had the 2019, which I watched, and I have a friend who loves World Superbikes and hates MotoGP and goes on about how much better World Superbikes is. And I'd <laughs> said to him, so when Alvaro turned up in 19, I said, so here's this top 10 on a good day past it has been MotoGP rider goes across the world superbikes and he's just handing it to everybody he's won the first 11 races whatever it was and then of course he started falling off and lost the title so I looked a right chump <laughs> um, but no I think they have slightly different ethos in the two paddocks I do think MotoGP is the premier race series but I think World Superbikes is fantastic to watch they've had some absolutely banging races I've probably watched about half of them in okay. fact no I've probably watched a third of them but at least half of the race meetings, I've watched a race from there. But because they do the Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon format with the sprint race on a Sunday morning, you know, I'm nearly always at work on the Sunday because I work in week Sunday to Thursday. Right, yeah. So often I'll know the result before I get home. So I, I don't actually watch the race. I'll maybe watch the highlights later. But yeah, but I think Top Rack and Johnny both riding out their skin this year. But when you have the most powerful bike with the smallest rider and we'll mention this later on when we talk about rider bike weight limitations you know it's almost impossible and taking nothing away from Alvaro Bautista I mean the guy's 37 I think 36 37 but he's absolutely deserved the title this year but I think the people who count who make decisions know that in top rack 
you've got, in a sense, you could say, you know, I was saying about Brad Binder that I, I'm not sure he's a Marquez level genius or a Rossi level genius, but he's like Lorenzo without the brittleness. You know, he's just able to make things work. In fact, no, he's not like Lorenzo because Lorenzo made things work when the planets all aligned. I think Brad Binder is like Johnny Ray, but I think Top Rack is like Marquez. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, I think Brad and Johnny Ray are both incredibly talented, but they're analytical calculator machines. Yeah, I'm not saying they don't have character. Of course they do. They both do. And they both come across as lovely people. In fact, I've been lucky enough to interview both of them name dropping, but both come across as really nice guys. But their approach to Ray, I think Top Rack just... I don't know if you remember, but many years ago, someone said to Troy Bayliss, there's a debate going on about which peg should be weighted when you corner. Do you put your weight on the inside or the outside? And he said, I don't know. What did you ask me that for? Now I'm going to think about it, get it wrong, and I'll probably bloody crash. And he was really angry, but he didn't know which foot he waited. He just didn't think about it. And I think that's top rack. Yeah. It's instinct. It's just, why do you do it like that? I don't know. It seems like the right way to do it. If someone can say to him, actually, what you're doing there, you need to do it like this, and it improves them, I mean, the sky's the limit. So I would love to see top rack come across to GP, but I don't think he will unless he gets the right deal. And I can't help thinking his personal ambitions might be better served with a different manager because let's not forget Keenan is not a fan Keenan Sofwolu um, Top Rack's manager you know multiple world super sport champion with Honda and then Kawasaki went to Moto2 and had a torrid time did not get on well in the paddock didn't like the paddock didn't like the people didn't like the bike didn't like the circuits didn't just didn't get on and there's no doubt about Keenan's talent but I don't, I, I, I'm not sure that he wants to view MotoGP as the pinnacle. Yeah, and there's also this sort of obdurate insistence that Toprak has to go to one of the works teams, which I think perhaps 10 years ago, you might have said, okay, I can kind of see why he's saying that. But to be honest with you, I, my view is that now the bikes are all so close together and all so competitive that I don't see it would do Toprak any harm. In fact, it might do him a world of good to start off on a slightly sort of less pressurised position than a fully works team. Well, of course, the, I mean, the two teams he's been associated with at world level is Kawasaki, who don't have a MotoGP presence, yep. and Yamaha, who only now have a factory team. So if he's going to stay within the Yamaha family... I can't see where he goes other than Yamaha factory. And if Morbidelli has another season like he did, I was surprised a few of the insiders were suggesting that there are definitely performance clauses within all contracts. So Yamaha probably could have dropped him. Mm. And they suggested that the reason they didn't was one to give him a chance because they know that you know he, he was runner-up in 2020 wasn't he yeah wasn't he yeah. runner-up to Juanmir? yeah to give him a chance to sort it out and turn it around but also because they didn't want to have to bring someone else in this year knowing they only wanted to offer them a one-year contract because they want top rack for 24 i don't know yeah i mean i remain pretty convinced that there will be a satellite yamaha squad uh, come 2024 but obviously that remains to be seen yeah but the strong rumor is if it is it's going to be vr46 yeah yeah. And if it is, it ain't going to be top rank. I agree with you on the sense there that, because uh, I think I was, again, I was speculating on the last show possibly, that perhaps at that point, Morbidelli goes across to the VR46 run ah, Yamaha see, and then yeah. top rack slots into the works squad alongside Quattararo, probably. And if Betzecchi and Marini, after their last season, have another season and build on it, which one of them do you chop? 
because it ain't going to be Valentino's brother. No. So is Bezeki out on his ear? Yeah, I don't know. And then there was a story the other day, which again, I think we mentioned on the news last show, about Yamaha talking to Jorge Martin. So, I mean, it's the usual silly season already getting going, isn't it? Oh, don't you love it? (laughs) I've got to be honest, to a degree, I blame Ducati when they chopped Lorenzo just before he started winning races. Because remember, silly season used to be during the summer break. Yeah. And we'd all reconvene at Silverstone or San Marino or wherever, or Berno or Laguna Sacra, I think, was often the end of summer break race. And then we'd hear about them all. Now, oh, the other one was Maverick Vinales signing before the season had started with his two-year extension to his Yamaha contract. It yeah. didn't obviously last long, but <laughs> yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah. So sprint races, where do you stand on this one? Well, I think it's funny. I mean, Marquez, Quattararo both said, yeah, brilliant. Bring it on. Yeah, it'll be good. Good fun. Do they really think that? Is it Piato? Aleish was fantastic with his what? This is stupid. And he said, before you go full tilt for it, why didn't you do what Formula One did? Have six in a season. Have it as a side run thing. You know, like it is what it is. I- I'm sure we'll enjoy watching it. I had thought, oh, hang on, I couldn't find anything about extra engines. And David Emmett of Moto Matters fame was able to put me straight because, of course, we've lost free practice three. So actually... Four. Sorry, free practice four, yes, has been chopped in favour of the sprint race so actually the number of laps is no greater than it was so the engine allocation remains the same i know we're all going to be running comparison title tables aren't we (laughs) what would it have been does it skew the results and i think it will and i mean this is possibly a good point time to make the point that i wanted to make having listened to you guys about bastianini i don't think bastianini is going to have as good a season as people think because one of the huge things about his talent was he could go fast for the entire race because he was very good at preserving his tyre. But the sprint races are going to negate that because no one's really going to have to worry about tyre wear. I mean, even the soft that Michelin are producing, most of them can go a full race without too much of a problem. Mm. So the sprint race is not going to bother anybody. Also, they've got slightly more fuel proportionally because I think it's half distance, but they've got 12 instead of 22 litres. So they've got slightly more than half. Now, I don't know the reason for that. I mean, how are they going to quantify that? Check the fuel gauges? Yeah. I don't know. If they're anything like the bikes I've owned, they're not that accurate. But I'm really fascinated to see how this is going to play out because, uh, I mean, we haven't really talked about this a great deal, but, I mean, this is a massive, massive change, isn't it? Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it directly affects the full races because there's going to be fatigue, there's going to be injuries, bike damage, bike yeah. use. You know, it's okay to say, well, on a free practice four, they'd have normally done more laps than they're going to do in the sprint race. But would they have done them all absolutely balls out? You know, I don't know. Then it'd be interesting to see what the strain is. Uh, I think the strain on the teams is going to be remarkable. You know, 42 Mm. races in a season is, I've got to be honest, it's heading towards becoming unsustainable. And I think there's going to be pushback. And I think you might get a lot of teams, especially with the older mechanics, not the ones who are just out of apprentice and showed great promise or, you know, somehow got themselves a gig in their early 20s. But the guys who've got families, I think they're just going to say, do you know what, it's not worth a candle. And they'll try and get a job at, you know, Yamaha Racing Base in Italy or, you know, at Kalex chassis making facility in wherever it is, Germany. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It worries me, this urgent quest for more profit. You know, it's fine. I know we've got to keep it above water. We we want our sport to to flourish. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
you know yeah actually it's the opposite don't drown the baby by putting too much bath water in <laughs> yeah i mean I'm, I'm one of these i'm slightly conflicted on this one because i would far rather have a race to watch than a free practice four session i think probably most people would kind of go along with that but it's kind of the the hasty manner and the poorly communicated manner in which this all came into being that makes me a little bit worried about how things are going to go and then i was reading yesterday probably a sort of a more of a clickbait type thing but a lot of the riders saying that they're, they're current contracts don't make any allowance for this so what are they going to get paid for doing another race so there's probably a bit of political trouble brewing in the background on all of this as we wind up towards the season starting so yeah it's going to be uh compelling i think yeah that's a good point actually i hadn't thought i hadn't even thought about that yeah because there's all sorts of bonuses around race wins and points scored and stuff and of course because none of the riders or teams or for what i can gather the team certainly not the riders at least were consulted about this when it was announced what around silverstone last year if i remember correctly yeah and a lot of these guys are on contracts that run until the end of this coming season yeah there's no provision in the contracts for a lot of what's going to be expected of them now so i think there is going to be some shenanigans going on probably in the early part of the season and the other weird thing is the points you get it's first to ninth isn't it 12 points down to one the points you get will go towards the world title but they won't appear in any statistics yes so how does that work okay so let's say for argument's sake that brad binder is the 2023 MotoGP world champion. Uh, he had 387 points. Will it say brackets 48 asterisk and then say that's those were gained in the sprint race? I don't know. Mm. I, I don't understand how that works. From a contractual point of view, if you're one of these riders, as I'm sure many of them are, where you kind of, at least part of your pay in the year is down to how many points you score, given that you're getting less points, okay, you're, you're racing less distance, but is a point in the sprint race worth financially the same amount as a point in the main race? It's all a bit of a minefield, really. I well, suppose to make it proportional, it would be like, if you get one point in the main race, we'll give you you know, I don't know what it would be, 3,000 euros. If you get one point in the sprint race, we'll give you 1,000 euros because it's a shorter distance. You haven't had to work so hard, but you've had to come closer to the front to get that one point. So it kind of balances out. Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, the David Emmett's, the Matt Oxley's, the Simon Patterson's of the world will be scratching away at this issue more or less straight away and (laughs) revealing some interesting information. So just whilst we're on sort of contentious stuff then, Martin, the sort of slightly thorny subject of rider penalties and rider conduct and, you know, (laughs) Certainly we see the trickle-down effect of this because there have been a few, uh, I don't want to say dodgy or dubious, that's not the right terminology, but um, interesting calls, for example, in a couple of cases in BSB this year, which I don't think we would have seen a couple of years ago. Because I often think one of my criticisms that I've made, to some extent, possibly criticisms a bit strong, but you know where Formula One goes, Dorna seems to follow. Uh, and sprint races being a good example of that recently. And you do yeah. sort of tend to see this trickle down of what the world championships implement, the national ones. And, uh, and some of that is obviously quite good, particularly around safety and stuff. But when it comes to the whole rider governance thing, is this necessary or do you think there's a bit of overreach in terms of penalizing people for things that are not obviously dangerous yeah i mean it's interesting because the note i've written the first little bullet point i've given to myself under the rider penalties conduct good or of concern is really contentious topic so we've both used the word contentious and it is i think motor three riders are slightly different from Moto2 and MotoGP because they are super competitive, uh, enthusiastic kids. And as we know, super competitive, enthusiastic kids have an immortality complex and they often ignore team instructions, let alone race direction instructions. I think that their loitering, waiting to get a toe because they know how important it is, just it has to be stopped. And the only way you're going to stop it is disqualify them. Yeah. So 
First offence, you get sent to the back of the grid for that weekend. Second offence, in an entire season, that's it. You put your bike away, get on the plane, go home because you're not racing. Until they start to penalise them at that sort of level, the problem is it's always going to be to a degree subjective. You know, I swung, I ran wide, something wasn't right on my bike. So I doored looking down, checked my bike, saw it was okay, looked up, rejoined. How long is it before, you know, I was looking over my shoulder to make sure that no one was coming up behind me. I don't know. Or maybe you say, if you leave the track, you have to come into the pits at the end of that lap. If you leave the track Mm. for any reason, if you exceed track limits, at the end of that lap, you must come into the pits would be another way to stop them loitering and tagging onto someone. But I'm sure Race Direction have looked at this I don't think Moto2 and MotoGP are not convinced as much that needs to change. We've had the odd outlier. I mean, Morbidelli had a weird season, didn't he? But he rode dangerously on more than one occasion. I'm still really conflicted over the Quattararo penalty when he took out Aleish. I mean, it was a cock-up, yeah, but... It was a racing incident as far as I was concerned. He was trying to make a lunge, he lost traction and, and took out Aleish and it was really unlucky. Did he take him out? No, he knocked him off, didn't he? He knocked him off. Well, he sort of outbraked himself and took him out and knocked him into the yeah. gravel trap, didn't he? On yeah, the first sort of main hairpin corner at Assen. But Aleish continued that race, didn't he? Of course he did, yes, because he, he made his way back up and did that amazing pass Your at the end. overtake yeah. of the year yeah. <laughs> at the end of it. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and then Quattro was punished and I thought, well, he crashed. He didn't finish the race. So, well, he, he crashed twice in that race, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So I think he's been punished enough, really. I don't know. The off-track thing, the sensors, it's frustrating when they say drop one place and you're like, what? And then they show you again and it's barely a millimetre, but it's definitive. Mm. It's not subjective. It's not down to race directions at eyes. It is, yeah, you triggered it. You were over it. Sorry, guys, it's the same for everyone. So I think that's fair enough. And, and it's the technology exists, so they're going to use it. I agree with you on following Formula One. I think they need to think very carefully about Formula Oh, and have you seen, do you, I don't know if you've watched any Formula One. The only, the last, the only Formula One race I've watched in the last ooh, 25 years was that ridiculous debacle at Abu Dhabi where yeah. they basically conspired to make sure that Lewis Hamilton didn't win another title. It's just, and then sacked the race direction, but said, the race director and said, no, there's nothing wrong with it. It was the right decision. No, it wasn't. It was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. But they leave the track track like it, it, all four wheels have to leave the track for it to count as, as being off limits i'm like what they, they kind of got two wheels in the well not the grass but you know uh it's very strange anyway let's not yeah. talk about formula one because it's shite well you do find yourself kind of yearning for the return of a bit of grass don't you really because but then you, you get into the whole safety yes debate, i suppose but you, you know if you had a, a wider area of curb then grass or, or gravel that's penalty in of itself isn't it and a bit like what you're saying with, with fabio i mean he crashed in that incident in us and so that was his penalty already yes you know his, his race was screwed one of the ex-riders who surprisingly because it was a struggle to get him to talk at all whilst he was a rider but who comes out with the wisest things i think is casey stoner and he said we got rid of the grass for safety but as soon as you put tarmac they'll use it yeah. they will seek an advantage anywhere and everywhere to get and he said it's inevitable you had when the as soon as the technology was developed for the sensors, you had to put them in because otherwise they just, he said, no one's going to obey a spirit of a rule. If you can't enforce it, don't make it. Yeah. And when you can enforce it, you have to enforce it and you have to do it as fairly as you can, which means it's the same for everyone. You see, I think, I know people are saying, oh, he's going to come back. He's, he's going to be like a rider 
psychology coach for Ducati. He's back with Ducati now. And I think Casey Stoner would be a really, really clever appointment to take over from Freddie Spencer as rules and regs, you know, race direction sort of overseer or was he chief steward? Yeah, yes, I, I think remember. that is the title. Yeah, some, something like that. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't ever really occurred to me on that one. And funny enough, actually, you mentioning Casey, I was listening to, oh, I can't remember which podcast it was. Anyway, but I'm pretty sure it was Simon Patterson that was saying that Casey and Pekka Banyaya talked to each other an awful lot, particularly in the second half of last year, which is yeah. interesting. But with Casey, as you say, becoming a bit more integrated back into the Ducati fold again. Uh, and I think he did lend quite a lot of kind of, um, I would stop short of saying rider coach or anything like that, but certainly in terms of the, the, the mental approach to dealing with the pressure and just take it, you know, race by race kind of attitude. I think Casey behind the scenes was really quite effective advocate and support system to Pekko Banyaya, who, let's face it, had a number Mategi aside, had an mm. unbelievable second half of the season. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and I've certainly got the impression, I think Valentino is, is really enjoying being competitive in car racing and he's got a new team. He's going to BMW for this yep. coming year. And I think he will return and become a Lucio Cecanello or a Fausto Grassini, God bless him, but not yet. Yeah. So I think, and Ucho is obviously very good at a nuts, as a nuts and bolts team manager. They've done a, a great job. If you can't have someone at the level of Rossi coming in week on week and helping you guys, to have Casey there, phenomenal. Now, I know he's not just VR46, of course, he's Ducati, so he's more going to be at the top. But, you know, so many of those guys have come through the VR46 channels. Though, of course, notably not Bastianini or Digi Antonio, but... yeah. Going back to the original question, I just hope, you know, we don't spend an awful lot of the year, me and Jim, on the podcast, lamenting and ranting about race direction calls that have affected the outcome of a race or spoiled the race midway through or, or whatever. Because it, yeah, it just sometimes you just feel that there's so many rules and so many enforcements now that it kind of is almost a, an anti-racing kind of mindset must creep in where you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't take that move. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I hope we don't get that far into this because I think it risks damaging the product damaging the show although i hate using that terminology but but it is it's entertainment yeah it's entertainment and and this is another element of ross's genius lay is he absolutely recognized that you know we'd never seen the sort of post-race celebrations he did and and he managed to give that impression of being spontaneously funny and clever and witty i don't think anything valentino rossi's ever done has been spontaneous i think he's everything is planned and calculated and practiced and, yeah. you know, what if he hadn't won the race where Osvaldo the Duck was going to go around on his on the back of his bike or the Claudia Schiffer blow-up doll or the <laughs> Portaloo at the side of the track? That may have been spontaneous, actually. Spontaneous is Jorge Lorenzo jumping into the lake at Ereth in full leathers and nearly drowning and having to be rescued by a guy in an HRC T-shirt, which was hilarious. But that's <laughs> spontaneous, and it doesn't normally go very well. So, um, yeah. One of the um, – was it Mark Neal, the – director that did the faster uh, yeah, documentaries Neal, yeah. which i just love those a, either in the first or the second of those films there's a great quote from uh is it michael scott the sort of the long-standing bike racing journo yeah if he doesn't smoke a pipe he looks like he should do yeah exactly he's bearded chap and he says one thing you must never forget about valentina rossi this was when rossi was still racing at the height of his powers so one thing you must never forget about valentina rossi is he's a killer you know yeah. as you say everything he did was purely and utterly aimed at winning by any means necessary. And there was quite a bit of underhand Machiavellian stuff that went on from time to time. Let's, let's not sugarcoat it, looking backwards now. I mean, Rossi was 
quite a character, but that's kind of what made Absolutely. him so lovable. But then you, you look at races like, um, was it, yeah, it was Philip Island, was it, where he was given a 10 second penalty. So he just mm-hmm. pulled out another 10 seconds lead yeah. and still won. So he was doing that classic thing, I think. The first person I remember it being attributed to was Halewood winning at the slowest possible speed. Yeah. So you're not giving away anything. And I'm sure he used a sandbag. I'm sure he was capable of doing a Lorenzo or a Stoner and just pulling out the front and leaving everyone in their dust or a Doohan. Yeah. But he'd seen, don't forget, he was coming up through the lower classes when Doohan was in that period of dominance. And he's seen it and he's seen people complaining about it and saying, well, it's really boring. And it's not Mick Doohan's fault. He was just better, better than everybody else. Yeah. Remarkable rider that he was. Um but I think he he learned from all that and he realised you need to give people a show. And look at his personal fortune. I mean, he's made a lot more money from outside of pure salary and win bonuses than he has in. I believe that's the case. I'm sure that's true. Because yeah. he gained a cult following. Yeah. And he hasn't done too much for the purse strings of uh, Dorna either over the years, because there is still quite a bit of criticism as to the, you know, the fact that he's been retired for what two years now and he's still kind of almost seen as the poster boy of the MotoGP championship which is a bit of a problem I'm trying to remember the first year I went to La Salle and the poster advertising the MotoGP didn't have Valentino on the front and I think it was it wasn't till something like 19 or 20 where he hadn't been a title contender for what was the last year? I suppose um, 15 was the last one where he was really a serious contender. Or did he, what did he do in 16? I can't remember. Yeah, I'd need to go back into the old almanac for that yeah. one. <laughs> um, now, the other rather fun thing you'd asked me was to think of one track on the GP calendar I'd like to kill and which track I'd like to replace it with, past yeah. or present. And I thought, oh, my God, we're still trotting this one out in the off-season. <laughs> I'm sure Bob did this with Jim Race and Jules before I even joined in. I'm sure this was going there. Okay. (laughs) It's always a winner. And my answer to get rid of is the same as it's always been. And I bet you can guess what I'm going to say. Well, okay, let's say, but you're not allowed to pick Valencia. (laughs) Ah, Oh, well, I, I haven't given anywhere else any thought because it's just an absolute no-brainer. Valencia. Yeah, I agree. Valencia is just a, oh, yeah. Why? Okay, if I'm not allowed to, I mean, it's 80% of the fans can see, 80% of the track. I've been there twice. I've had a fantastic time both times, but that's largely because it's, well, the second time I went was 2015. It was my 50th birthday celebration thing. And I met Jules Jusek face-to-face for the first time ever. Nice. And we had a three-hour road trip in our little Fiat 500 hire car from Madrid down to Valencia. And we had an absolutely brilliant time. But as a racetrack, it's awful. But when it got rid of, oh, right, I'm going to have to think on my feet here. What would I get rid of? I'll tell you what I would get rid of so it never appeared on any PlayStation MotoGP game again it would be a Saxon ring because I cannot get that circuit sorted. I am utterly hopeless. I just... It's a go-kart track. That's the problem. Yeah, it's really strange. The first three quarters are entirely dull and then the last quarter or the last third are incredibly exciting. And we do, we have had some good racing there, but... Yeah, no, yeah. to be fair, I must, I must disqualify what I just said. I actually really like the Saxon ring and I actually went to the Saxon ring road uh, on my bike, my VFR at the time, from here to yeah, East Germany, which was a real. I was going to say, if you laugh. took a VFR around Saxon Ring on a track day, you're a brave man. But <laughs> I'm sure you'd um, be capable of it, just as long as you went very, very slowly. It was a brilliant race. Uh, Rossi was on the uh, what was the name of the cigarette brand? Galois was it? The, the French oh, yeah, yeah. cigarette, you know, the blue Yamaha, yeah. and one that he rode. It must have been around about what 2008, 
somewhere perhaps around about that. I'd... No, they were Fiat by then, weren't they? I oh, were they? Gulas they must have been early have, no, Gulas would have been five or six. Okay. Yeah, okay. So it would have been, yeah. So, it, well, that was what he was riding anyway. And it was uh, oh, just brilliant. I mean, I, I lived in Germany for a year, so I love Germany anyway. Anywhere that does massive, great big frying pan full of fried potato and egg always gets my vote. So, yeah, fantastic. Highly recommended Saxa Ring if anybody ever is trying to think of somewhere to go. Even though it's one of those, on paper, it shouldn't produce good racing. It, it often does. So, mm. no, I want to leave Saxa Ring. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stick with Valencia. I don't care what the rules are. It's, it's Valencia. I actually answered this one as well so i had four tracks on my potential hit list but i'm gonna focus on one and again this might be a bit contentious i would swap mizano which is not a track i particularly like particularly not since they yeah. reversed it i would swap mizano with imola uh, yeah i'm not sure if imola is suited we'd not be tempted with monza but or monza no, that that, yeah. that would be mental but yeah no that's a fair one yeah mizano doesn't make for great racing le mans often you think it really shouldn't, and yet you end up with actually quite a good race there. It's a bit like Saxon. Like Often that. due to the weather, I think, at Le Mans, though, because yeah. although not this last year, but invariably it's pretty damp and cold there, and it's only Saxon's the only German race. You should leave it alone. Yeah, Le Mans is the only French race. You should leave it alone. If anyone ever touches Mugello, the house is going to be burnt down. Yeah, no, Mugello, Phillip lights. Island, they are absolutely gospel. I mean, the jewels in the crown. Don't touch them. Now, Silverstone shouldn't be a good bike track because it's flat. There's no elevation changes hardly at all. However, we often get really good racing there. Mm. I'd love to see him go back to Donington, but that last quarter of the track, the, the um, Melbourne Loop and Goddard is just... I mean, it's just been put in there to increase distance enough. Yeah. So, yeah. No, so Silverstone should probably stay. I think if a race circuit is going to be chopped, it's got to be Spanish because we go there far too many Far times. too many races, yeah. So on my list of Chopham, I'll just give you my list. I have, yeah. obviously, Valencia. I'm yeah. not a big fan of Barcelona, Catalonia as a track. And again, it's a, yet another Spanish race that... Well, no, it's not, it's not Spanish, it's Catalonia, isn't it? Okay, we won't get into that political <laughs> debate. Bloody no. um, <laughs> I love Barcelona because we, Sharon and I used to go there. We went there for several years before we came out here and we love Barcelona as a city. Oh, well, I mean, fantastic city. So no, it's a no nostalgia doubt. connection. And we were there in 09 for the Rossi Lorenzo, the, that race. That one, uh, yeah. That and I was corner. the only person wearing a Lorenzo shirt in a crowd full of Rossi fans, including my <laughs> wife. And I was very quiet at the end of it. Uh, but it's all very good natured. So my list was Austria, which I'm not a big fan of because it's just loads of straights. Barcelona, San Marino, as in uh, Mizano. Yeah, Mizano, yeah. Mategi, I wouldn't lose too much sleep over. And on obviously Valencia. And in my replacement list, I had, or at least tracks to consider bringing back and accepting that there are some safety issues around a couple of these. I'm probably in a small minority of people that actually quite likes Manicourt in France. Okay. Um, I had Imola, as I said. I'd love to see Suzuka back, accepting all of the problems with barriers being too close and so on. But the absolute, for me, if they were going to put one more jewel in the crown to sit alongside Mugello and Philip Island, it would be a return to Spa Francorchamps. Yeah, that's been rumoured, hasn't it? That uh, I'm sure Matt Oxley did a thing that the changes made at Spa yes. for Formula One actually, for once, benefit 
bikes and it could be a possibility. Well, and Martin, they did make some further changes last winter to Spa, specifically yeah. for bike racing, and they had a round of the Endurance Championship Okay, yeah. last year. And I think that is being seen as a precursor, certainly to World Superbike turning up there. And who knows, hopefully, maybe one day, even MotoGP itself. That would be awesome. Iconic track. I haven't shared any of those on my. I've got two for my reintroduction. Okay. Uh, one of them, bizarrely, seeing as it's Valencia, a Herman Tilke design track, is another Herman Tilke design track. But it's Istanbul. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, really good one. I think it's turn 11, that flat stick, half right uphill. And I remember Leon Haslam saying that's his favorite corner because it is full commitment. Yeah. And I think. I think I recall watching Melandry in MotoGP passing someone on that corner and I just half whooped, half screamed in amazement, horror, admiration, all sort of wrapped in one going, what are you doing, you crazy? Um, I, I know that they had issues with the paddock. There was issues with logistics of getting there and there were other problems, but, you know, that would be great. But if I had to go for one, there are no African races in MotoGP at all. Yeah, which is a shock. And with an African presence in the form of the Binder Brothers, and I mentioned this to Brad when I spoke to him, oh, God, what would it have been? Three or four years ago now, probably. He'd just come up to um, MotoGP, and he said, Kyle, I'm his GP ready. Yeah. And uh, GP went there in the 80s, I think only for two or three years. I think I've got some vague memory that Freddie Spencer might have won there. But then World Superbikes went only... 12, 15 years ago. Yes. I think they call it the lift shaft or the mine shaft. The mine shaft, I think. I don't know if it would be feasible. They might have had to somehow change the contours of that hill because I think MotoGP bikes might actually be airborne all the way down. <laughs> the parachutes required. But I think, oh, wow, that could be a real buzz. And I do think, of course, we can't have MotoGP racing in every country on the planet. We'd have to have five-year-long seasons, but we should be represented on every continent. Yes, I think Kyle Army is a great shout, and I'm rather kicking myself for not thinking of that one myself, actually. I mean, don't forget, they did race at, uh, was it called Welcome or Velcom? Yeah. Uh, for a couple of seasons in South Africa, but that was quite short-lived. But Kyle Army would be the obvious place to go, and it is a great, great track. And it's, as you say, Martin, yeah. it's pretty modern. I think it's had Well, a, I did have a look revamps. at their website, and they are talking very enthusiastically about all the improvements the resurfacing the paddock facilities said we're ready to take gp of four wheels or two you know yeah. they're, they're really pushing it do you know what i've said this to a couple of mates of mine because we're all sort of into various forms of two and four wheel motorsport and given how long and how troublesome the length of some of these seasons are becoming allied to the fact that there are certainly some of the current tracks and tracks that have fallen away because of financial difficulties i just don't understand why we can't say go to istanbul one year and then give it a rest year and go somewhere else you know but have it sort of contractually done so you some of these tracks get one year on one year off thereby you get to go to more varied places and then i think you could conceivably bring in other places that are obvious omissions from the world championship you, you know and Africa is an absolutely, or South Africa is an absolutely prime candidate for filling that gap, I think, as you say. Yeah, that's one of those ideas that I instantly think, oh my God, that is genius. And think, why hasn't that been suggested at higher levels? And there's possibly a really, maybe not obvious, but a really critical commercial reason why that couldn't be done. Or it is possible that actually... People haven't thought of that, or it hasn't been seriously suggested, or it has at lower levels, but no one's got the nuts to suggest it to the boss. Yeah. So you might recall in Formula One a few years ago when 
it tends to be the Western European uh, and North American tracks, I think, that suffer from a lack of government, you know, publicly funded support, let's say. And I know this was a big issue in Germany a few years ago, and I'm pretty sure in Formula One, there are three or four years where the race alternated between Hockenheim and the Nürburgring so that they weren't financially committed to having to run the race at a loss, often at a loss or very, very thin margins every single year. And I thought that worked really well. And you got to go to two pretty good tracks in one country. So why the hell we can't do that? I just, I don't understand, really. And if they did a deal, said, okay, I don't know, for example, yeah, Istanbul and Kyle Army, we'd like to come back to you. You both get five years, but over a 10-year period. Yeah. Odd years we're going to Istanbul, so they can plan, they can budget. Yeah, that's a really interesting proposition. Unfortunately, we don't sit on the board of directors at Dorna, Martin, but um, there you go. No. Maybe somebody will listen. (laughs) Does seem an obvious solution to a... Yeah, a problem that's been around for a long, long time, really, uh, particularly financially for a lot of these tracks, as I say, because if they don't get government support, then making ends meet is difficult. And everybody understands that. I mean, even Silverstone, for goodness sake, I mean, seems to be constantly on the verge of falling over. Yeah. So, and they do run a good event, although it's very poorly attended Silverstone this year. track sharing, didn't they? At the beginning of each year, they said it's going to Circuit of Wales. Then within a couple of weeks, realised Circuit of Wales <laughs> hadn't, they hadn't even put a shovel in the ground. So they gave it to Silverstone. Beginning of the next year, I said, no, the contract's still with Circuit Wells. That was a, such a shame. That was such a shame. I never interviewed him for the show, but I did speak to Chris Herring, who was um, heavily involved. He was brought in as a technical guy, and I think he was told an awful lot of bullshit, but that he was very keen on the idea, and they convinced him, the money guys, that you know the funding was there and all this, and, and he was really enthusiastic. And everything I hear about him is that you know the guy is absolutely 100% racing in his blood, straight as a cricket bat, I was going to say straight as a die and and it all turned out to be pie in the sky they bought ftr didn't they uh the chassis maker yeah yeah and then silverstone had to step in and then dawna realized and and this is you wonder this with hunger ring kimmy ring yeah which hasn't happened yet you know um, hunger Ring as well never mm. did yeah it's it's a you know there's an agreement in principle with about four or five countries that i don't think don't even have circuits built yet of course, we're going back to India this year as well, which is a that's another tilker track, I think, from the Formula One days, which sort of dropped into obscurity for a while. And MotoGP is going there this year. So that's going to be an interesting one. Yeah. And the I, I've got some vague memory that there was a real problem in India with their import laws. Do you had to uh, the Bud yes. International Circuit? That's it. Yeah. And that is in, in late September. Yeah. You have to have. Um, customs clearance for everything you bring in so all the teams would have to go through a full customs inspection the team's like no you don't get to do that you don't get people we have no idea who they really are saying they're customs officials and looking through all our secret race (laughs) equipment so I don't know how it works but then of course you know so they they must have come to some agreement yeah yeah because that's what stopped the Formula One guys going there wasn't it but I can only assume that they've changed the rules around carnets and as you say the signing in and out of equipment internationally and the amount of money that you have to put up in front of that i think is a kind of a guarantee and the the good stuff is we've only got just over two months to wait till we start at algarve at um yeah portamao yeah which is fantastic circuit i love that circuit then it's off to argentina and then cota uh, and then it's back to europe for Jerez, le mans magello saxon ring assen sokol international so that's in hang on which one's sokol Oh, yes, Kazakhstan, of course. Yeah, yeah, Kazakhstan. Yeah, that's the new one. Okay, so that's the Kazakhstani one, which is, yeah, okay, it's not too long haul. 
Oh, that's a bit strange. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. That's the beginning of July. Then we have the break to the beginning yeah. of August. So it's it's barely a month. Yeah. Silverstone, Red Bull Ring, Barcelona, Mizano. Then it's India. Then it's Japan, Indonesia, then Australia, then Thailand, then Sepang, Malaysia, then Qatar, then Valencia. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six. There are seven on the flyaway, six of which are in the Far East yeah. or Australia, you know, which is sort of, you know, other side of the world. And as you say, 21 rounds, 42 races now, including the sprint. So that is a gruelling old schedule, isn't it? And that runs all the way through till the very end of November. So, poof, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's that, a lot of that, work. I mean, and, and, you know, the mechanics, I don't think they often get to go home, you know, in between races during those periods. Yeah, I mean, I haven't counted up how many back-to-backs there are in there, but there will be quite a lot. India to Japan is a back-to-back. Then it's two weeks to go to Indonesia. Then it's a back-to-back with Australia, which is also a back-to-back with Thailand. Then they get two weeks and it's Malaysia. A week later, it's Qatar. A week after Qatar, it's on the 26th of November, it's Valencia. Yeah, where they'll be scraping ice off the windscreens. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's great for us at all the races. I mean, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, as we always say, well, I'll let you say it at the end, but uh, we know what the, the tagline's going to be in terms of what this <laughs> this year's going to be. But yeah, we're not going to be short of races yeah, to watch yeah. there. That's for sure. And that's before Certainly we even not. start talking about <laughs> World Superbike and British Superbike and Motor America and goodness knows what else. So I hope the aficionados of World Superbike and BSB understand and forgive me for my less than total concentration on those series i just you know i haven't got enough enough hours in a day yeah it's hard to fit it all in yeah i'm going to be chatting to greg haynes again from eurosport on the world superbike state of affairs oh we like uh, greg fairly shortly so very good yeah yeah Few more guy. people lined up to come on as well, which is going to be good. So yeah, we're going to really sort of go for it this year with interviews. Try and do as much as we possibly can, uh, given time constraints and work and one thing and another. I can try and get accreditation um, for November. Yeah, which will be the penultimate race meet of the season. So that'll be quite interesting if I can on behalf of could. the show. Yeah, I'll certainly give it a go. Well, Superbikes aren't coming here at all now. Formula One are, and I don't care. Yeah, but <laughs> so I've got two things left to mention one we've sort of touched on is about any bastianini and just the fact that he does remain an enigma to me i love his bollocks to you i'm going to win mm. and he definitely has race craft but i do think that attitude may show a lack of career craft yes i, I think for me he could be a i think he's faster than this i was going to say simoncelli i don't think marco simoncelli wonderful character though he was i don't think he was ever going to trouble anyone in a title race but I think he would have won races. Uh, he had the capability. I think Bastianini is a level up from that, but I just don't see him being able to hold everything together for a title, for a, a successful title run, if you know yeah. what I mean. And you do kind of get the impression with him that there's a strong likelihood going into this season, for the reasons that we've already discussed, that there's quite quickly going to be quite a lot of ill feeling in that camp I, that's just the slightly negative sense that i have going into the season mm. uh, whether that will be a positive or a negative for him we will get to find out i suppose but he's very combative as you say martin isn't he and um he's not out to make friends he seems to be cheerfully aggressive he's not a snarler that's a good he's not a snarler that. he's a smiler pat you on the cheek and say yeah whatever mate I mean, maybe he's a little bit like Valentino in that way, you know, the, the, the classic smiling assassin, you know. Yeah, I could imagine him coming out with a couple of stoner lines, like, you know, well, just guess your ambition outweighed your talent, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. that sort of 
um, which I thought was classic. And I know at the time you got a lot of stick from the Rossi and Airy or whatever they, you know, they should be referred to, the Rossi fans. But yeah, the only other thing I wanted to mention, really, if we're going to put Bastianini to bed, not literally, obviously, because he's too old to need put into bed. I'm sure he can find his own way there. Is mo- the, the Moto2, the rider bike weight limit, it hmm. was, or the discussions about rider bike weight limits, it was introduced not long after the class began. As far as I'm aware, I looked up, I think it's 217 kilograms combined, which is phenomenal when you think, yeah, my goodness. I mean, a lot of sport bikes are, are not far off 200 kilograms, and this is including a rider. So, yeah. you know, I don't know what a Moto2 bike weighs, but it obviously isn't much. And it was to help reduce the penalising effect of being a bigger rider. And I remember Scott Redding when he was at Mark VDS and his teammate was Mickey Calio. So you got Scott's like 1.85 metres tall. Calio's 1.6, right? So it's a 20 centimetre difference. Scott had quite a large build. He's quite broad-shouldered. Mickey was, you know, he's a very slight guy, sort of almost Danny Pedroza-esque. And Scott was saying, well, it's, you know, it's ridiculous. I weigh so much more than him. It's got to be a combined bike and rider limit. And then Calio responded, made a very good point. He said, okay, so you're going to put penalty weight on my bike, but that's going to be static, whereas Scott's weight is dynamic and he can move it around. So Mm. actually, there are some circumstances where that's an advantage because it helps him turn, it can help him with traction. And it's like, ah. However, if anyone's in doubt that it's usually more an advantage to be small and light look at Bautista in last season on that Ducati and he just okay he's got the fastest bike but he was considerably faster than all the other Ducatis as well so it was it was his skill but it was also his size I mean he's another pint-sized one so yeah you know interesting Hmm. so thank you for clarifying on that because I think it was me that we were talking about Jake Dixon if I recall in the last show and yeah, because he's quite tall, limits, isn't it? And because he's quite sort of lanky, I think is probably the best way. I'm sure he doesn't weigh a yeah. great deal. And I was just making the point that perhaps whilst if there is a combined weight on in the category, which you've said there is of 217 kilos, I think you said, then fair enough. But then you perhaps yeah. you get into that, where is the weight? And obviously uh, with a rider, it's higher up. So that might make the central gravity a bit harder to manage. But then as you quite rightly just pointed out, Martin, it's a dynamic weight. So you've got bigger levers to muscle the bike around. So it's... I suppose you gain in some areas and lose in others, like everything in life. Yeah. I remember because Ian Wheeler, our mutual friend who is the, who was then press officer for Mark VDS, I was talking to him about it off the record because he never agrees to go on the record. <laughs> yeah. He says, no, media officers are not there to speak to the media other than arranging talks with their principals. But um, And Ian said that the thing that Mika had been pointed out he said well if we put the weight down low or right it we put this penalty weight at the center of gravity or the center of mass of the bike it negates any sort of balancing issues he said but then it makes the bike more stable and it's on a twisting track we don't want the bike to be stable mm. so can i have a weight that can move around somehow and then how do we propel it around you know um and, and it was really interesting to think about it and go, yeah, actually, I can see Mika Calio's point. So maybe he just has to eat more pizza in the off-season, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure most of them would jump at the chance, to be honest. Yeah. Having to sort of more or less starve themselves through most of the regular season. So, well, I'll tell you what, we've covered some topics there, Martin. I reckon we've been going at least 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's what time flies when you're having fun. Uh, we're just about to hit two hours, I think. So, um, yeah. Sorry, everybody. No, 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 it's been great. Hopefully... <laughs> 
everybody listening to this uh, has stuck with it and has enjoyed that. Uh, Martin, it just really remains for me to say a massive thank you for coming on and doing your research uh, beforehand because uh, I sent you some stuff that I thought would be good to talk about. Well, thank you for warning me. It would be great if you know if you are able to get down to the race in uh, in your home current home nation of Qatar. Yeah, I will start making inquiries about what's required. But in the past, they've accepted accreditation from Motopod. So I'll see what I can do. I'll make some inquiries. Yeah. Every year I sort of go through this angst of whether or not to go to Silverstone, because it's quite an expensive weekend by the time you've sort of factored in staying. Well, you, mm. can, you can't really stay locally. So every year I kind of think, well, maybe I should go somewhere else this year. So who knows? Maybe I'll do a flyaway this year if I can. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. I've got a long-standing ambition once we do rotate back to UK is, um, and I actually get myself a, a motorbike again, is to do a, I rode to Assen in, uh, that was 09 as well. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was camping. It was brilliant. But I think, okay, I'm probably a bit creaky and old to camp and I like my comforts. But to ride somewhere, I mean, you know, Gordon Ritchie on Paddock Pass doing the World Superbikes bit for the Paddock Pass guys, he rode to every European round last season on a bike. Yeah. David Emmett of motomatters.com and also Paddock Pass, he's rode to as many as he could on his new BMW 1250 GS. Yeah, see? Yeah, joining that he crowd. He's teasing everybody about what bike he got, and I think we're all sat again. Well, you'd have got another GS because... You know, you're an analytical software engineer background kind of guy. So you're just going to look at what's best. And everyone knows that's the best bike that's ever been built. So yeah, it's not the one that everyone wants more than any others. I'm torn. But anyway, that's a different, yeah. that's a different podcast and different conversation. Years ago, though, like you, the old bones start to creak and the, the bottom starts to break uh, a lot earlier than it ever used to do in the past. But I've done, in terms of riding, I've done Assen. I rode to Barcelona for the race there one year. I can't remember what year mm. that was. As I said earlier, I did the Saxon ring one year. I've also went to the uh, Nürburgring, although that bit that was a World Superbike event. So, yeah, it's great fun jumping on your bike and going for a few days onto the continent, I must say. I must do it again. Now for Barcelona, did you go down to Bilbao or San Sebastian and then ride the length of the Pyrenees? No, we actually rode all the way through France, took the channel. And oh, then right, rode- right. Rode down through Lamar, uh, stopped in Tour, I think, it, or maybe it was Toulouse actually overnight, and then up and yeah. over the Pyrenees and down into Barcelona the next day. So yeah, cracking. Because the uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Simon Weir, who's an ex bike journalist, but now does a load of travel. He organises tours and he's written. You know, you can you can buy his book electronically, which includes GPX download files you can put into your sat nav oh, I see, for right, all yeah. over Europe and um, and further afield, I think. But it's it's not like um, Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor. It, it's you know it's road tours primarily. Yeah. But he, I was reading a thing he was saying, if you're going to Catalonia, get the, the ferry to San Sebastian is fantastic. It's, it's a big ocean going ship. So you don't get rocking and weaving and your bike's brilliant to look after. Lovely food. Yeah. Get off. And then you can ride the length of the Pyrenees. And there's a particular road or series of roads that he recommends. And he basically takes you up into the mountains, then back down. And you don't do it in a day. You know, he said there's no point pushing it too hard. I think it's a two or three day ride. And you get to Barcelona and obviously, you know, stay there for, or Montmelo, stay there for the races and then back again. Maybe we need to organise a Motopod bike tour at some point. Well, that'd <laughs> be something, wouldn't it? I'd quite like to do, yeah, down to, like, as you say, San Sebastian or Bilbao, somewhere like that, uh, Santander. And then either do Portimao or perhaps go down to Jerez. That would be another good one. Uh, obviously, I'd, I'm pretty sure, just looking at the calendar there, Aragon has disappeared from the MotoGP calendar this year, although World Supers will be there again this year. So, yeah, lots of good places yeah. to go, which aren't too far away. 
way and certainly riding around France and definitely in Spain on a motorbike I mean what could be better exactly yeah brilliant on the bucket list Martin for when you get back always yeah brilliant well thank you very much indeed sir it's been a great pleasure to have you back on and I'm sure we'll do this again at some point try not to make it as much as a year and perhaps if the, <laughs> if the Qatar MotoGP round comes off that'll be superb yeah yeah it's been real fun talking to you yeah maybe we should do an end of season get together as the old hosts and then yeah do a pre-season one next year and they say right has anything changed since we spoke no okay right that'll do cheers we'll yeah, still manage off. to waffle on for two hours <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> no matter what all right mate thanks a lot brilliant cheers, cheers buddy catch you next time bye bye cheers